Morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat, please? Make yourself a home. Settle in. It's going to be a long... No, it's not going to be that. <laughs> but be comfortable. That's good. I want you to be able to hang with us and think through what, we're, what we've got going. We've got baptisms going on today, which is going to be really fun. We're going to, yeah, go outside and have some great time baptizing people after this gathering. So that's what's coming up a little bit later. Um, and just while, before we jump into scripture and talk about that a little bit, I just, I love the fact that God lets us know that he's our father. There's other things you know about God from the Bible. You know, he's our creator. He's the sustainer of everything here in this world, the sustainer of life. All those things are great, but the fact that he's our father and he's a good, good father, we didn't all have a good example of what a father is like, but God is a perfect example of what a father is like. He's amazing. And so we get to lean into him and love him and follow him. So thanks for being here today and being a part of that. Uh, Do you ever shop at thrift stores? Yeah? How many of you love to shop at thrift stores? How many of you, like, don't ever shop at thrift stores? How many of you just don't shop? <laughs> if we do interactive church, you guys going to be with me today? Because about half of you are like, you're still, I don't know, wishing you were in the coffee line or something. I'm not really sure. So I never, I never shop at thrift stores, Never. And it's not because they're bad. I don't think they're bad. In fact, I take stuff to the thrift store. I let them sell it. They can have it for free and then sell it to you, you know, you who shop at thrift stores. That's great. I just never shop at those. And the reason I never shop at them is because I grew up wearing hand-me-down clothes all the time. And I wasn't really a particular fan of it. You know, although when I got hand-me-down clothes, they were always better than the clothes that my mom would buy for me when she would buy clothes because the clothes I got always came from Kmart which maybe doesn't mean a lot to some of you, but some of you remember Kmart, and some of you, some of you are like, been around long enough to remember blue light specials. That's where my mother got my clothing. And so, I, you know, so my, my new stuff wasn't all that cool either. When I get stuff handed down from somebody else, it was usually pretty good quality stuff, but I didn't care because it wasn't mine. And so I, I just was not a big fan of hand-me-down stuff. So when I go to a thrift store, I'm like, it's all hand-me-down stuff. I don't really, I don't really want that. So you can have mine. It's fine. So uh, same, same thread, but a little bit different piece of the thread that I want to get to. Uh, you, you, most of you know that I have two grandchildren, right? And you've been watching them grow up here at Lakeside because I put them on screen uh, every so often when I need to. And so like this. So here's my grandson and my granddaughter. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and they're growing up and they're getting older and I'm having a blast. I, I love them. It's just amazing. And uh, so my old, these, these belong to my oldest daughter, my oldest child, and uh, we have three kids, so my oldest one has these grandkids, and both these kids were prematurely born, and so my grandson was born five weeks early and spent a couple of weeks in the NICU before he got to come home. My granddaughter, some of you will remember, she was born 12 weeks early, and she spent three months in the NICU, and my daughter would go to the hospital every single day, day after day after day for three months to be with her in the hospital. And it's, it's traumatic. It was a traumatic journey for my daughter to do that with her daughter. And so somewhere at the end of that journey, my daughter realized if the first one was born five weeks early and the next one was born 12 weeks early, the next one is just, it's not going to be tenable. So she decided she's not going to have any more children, which made me sad because I'm like, I, I, I want more grandchildren, you know, and so she's not going to have any more. And then my son, I don't even know. 
And then my other daughter, my youngest, she declared like from the time she got married, she and her husband decided they weren't going to have children. You know, she, she told us one day, she goes, we're not going to have children. I said, yes, you are. <laughs> and she gave me that look, you know, that your children can only give you that look that says you can't make me. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping back from this woman because it's not going to be helpful. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, for years we're not going to have any more grandchildren. And, and then my older daughter, because, because her sister wasn't going to have any children, she took all of her baby clothes and packed it up and gave, it, gave them away. So, you know, they're gone. And then this winter, my, my daughter comes out with an announcement. My other daughter, my second daughter, she comes out with an announcement. She goes, guess we're having a baby. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we are. Yeah, let's do the close-up on that little one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the baby is yet because they haven't told us. They're doing some reveal thing or something coming up soon, I guess. But, but we're having another, great, another grandbaby, so you'll see pictures. I just thought I'd get a jump on this one. I never got these little photos before, so that's fun. And, uh, but this little, this little kid is going to get no hand-me-downs. No, it's fine, because everything he or she gets is going to be new. Yeah, and Kmart went out of business. <laughs> no, I don't know if they did. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry about that. If you love Kmart, you know, sorry. Anyway, so uh, I'm not, I don't care. I don't care, if she, I don't care if he or she gets hand-me-downs or she gets, you know, brand new stuff. I don't really, that's fine, because there's a grandbaby coming, so that's all good. I don't care about hand-me-downs anymore, because no one seems to give them to me, which is great, too, because they never fit. You know those jeans, this is really off the subject, but you know those jeans that my mother used to buy me at Kmart? They, had, they used to have like pads in the knee before you wore a, a hole in them. You know where the pads are and pants that they buy for me? My jeans came with shin guards. I'm traumatized. <laughs> so, but all of that's not really the issue. The issue is this. There's one kind of hand-me-down that I really care a lot about. There's something that we hand down from parents to kids, from, from generation to generation that I really care a lot about. And it's this thing that nobody talks about in our world, really, but pastors and theologians. It's, it's this thing called sin. And sin is such a weird part of life in our world because we don't want to talk about it in a public way. We don't want to acknowledge that there's this thing called sin that keeps us separated from God and often keeps us separated from one another. It it leads to a lack of health in our lives. And we tend to hand it down. We get it from our parents who got it from their parents who got it from their parents. And some theologians actually call it hand-me-down sin. And it shapes us, and it wounds us, and it hurts us, and we just keep handing it down. Sin kills everything it touches. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not a headache. The wages of sin is not a tummy ache. The wages of sin is death. And yet we keep handing it down to the next generation. I worry about that kind of hand-me-down. I worry about it for me. I worry about it for you. I worry about it for our children. So I want you to see some stories from Scripture today that relate to this. The first one is found, it's not really a story, it's more of a commandment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, 
so if you have a Bible and you want to look this up, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. If you've got your smartphone, you can pull out the YouVersion Bible app and follow along with that. We've got some notes in there for you. Um, if you just want to listen to this, that's fine as well. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. It says this, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the third commandment. Last week we talked about there's, a, there's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament for us. This is the third one. This is of, of the big ten, like the, the ten commandments. This is commandment number three. Don't make for yourself anything to worship. Just worship God, he says. And there's consequences. And then he, he makes this amazing, weird statement. He goes, because God punishes the children for the sin of the parents to so the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. I'm like, whoa, is that fair? Is that just? Does that sound right? Does that sound like what God would do? I'm okay with the next part because the next part says, but he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And I, I claim that as a promise from God. I'm, and it's not really a promise. It's a, it's a general statement about who God is. But I'm like, God, give me a thousand generations. I love you and I try and follow your path. Give me a thousand generations of, of next ones. Right, I want my children to love Jesus, and I want my children's children to love Jesus, and I want their children to love Jesus. I want a thousand generations. But that line before that where it goes, he punishes the children for the sins of the parents? I don't know, that, that lands sideways on me. So then I go, okay, Maybe I understand it wrong. Maybe, maybe I misread it. So I read it again. It's like, well, it keeps saying that thing. So then I found this other passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. And this passage says this. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Like, okay, well, at least it's, at least it's equitable, you know, it's like, so, so here's kind of the next rule that goes with that. You can't, you can't put to death children because of the sins of their parents. You do the crime, you do the time. That's how it goes on you. And if, it goes, it's, if the next generation does it, it's on the next generation. But now I go, now I have a different problem. So now I'm thinking, okay, God is just. But now I got a problem with Scripture because it seems to be contradictory to each other. You know, one says God punishes the children for the sin of the parents. The next one says you can't, you can't put to death the children for the sin of the parents. What's what? When I go back to Exodus 20, I realize that God is making some commandments, but he's also giving statements about what's best in the world, what's good in the world. So, for example, when God gives us the commandments, a lot of people think that God gives the commandments, like the Ten Commandments. God gives the commandments because he wants to restrain you. He wants to restrict you. He wants to ruin your fun. We often treat the commandments like that. I I don't want to do these commandments, but I have to because God says so. Like, wait, wait a second. The commandments are actually the best way to live, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's actually the best way to live. Don't murder. 
Like, that's the best way to live, you guys. That's, you know, it's not like, oh, come on, I really wanted to take that guy out. Don't, don't commit adultery. Why not? Because adultery is not the best way to live. He gives you all these commandments because he loves you and he wants you to live the best way that you can live. And when he's describing what's going on and it says, and it says God punishes the children for the sin of the parents, that word punish is an interesting word because it's a word, just like we have in English, it's a Hebrew word that can mean very many things. There's a lot of nuance in words. Nuances in words. And so this one has some nuance. One way to translate it is punish, but one way to translate it, probably the most straight up and down way to, to translate it, is the word visit. And so in some translations of the scriptures, you'll find that it says God visits the sins of the parents to the, onto the children for the third and fourth generation. It's like, well, what, what does that mean? Does, you know, does the sin come and knock on the door and go, hello, come for a, I came for a visit? It's like, what is that? It's a, it's a concept that means this. It's, it's more like God is not telling this is what God does. This is what life does. God visits the sins of the, chil- the parents onto the children for the th- third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Don't we pass down sin? Don't we pass down character? Don't we become like our mom and dad? Did you ever swear like, I will never be like my father? Or I will never be like my mother? And then someday you're married and your spouse says, you are just like your father. <laughs> you are just like your mother. And you go, no. But it happened, and it got passed down. The sins of the parents get visited on the next generation. It's how life works. Why does it work that way? I don't know. But you live with them, and you watch them, and you pick up things. And so alcoholism passes down through generations. Sexual sins pass down through generations. Money sins pass down from generations. Addictions pass down through generations. It's hand-me-down sin. It's how life goes. And I think maybe rather than God saying, I, I inflict this on you, maybe God's saying, I restrain the damage after three or four generations. Maybe God's making a statement about a gift there where he goes, I'm not going to let this happen forever. But we watch that brokenness get handed down. Pain gets handed down. Fear gets handed down. Grief gets handed down. Shame gets handed down. And they all affect us. They all color us. I know that I'm afflicted by the sexual temptations of my father. I know that I'm afflicted by the prideful temptations of my mother and of her mother before her. I see it. I watch it. I deal with it. Like height, like eye color, like noses and chins, we pass down sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that there's hope for change. The beauty of the gospel is that there's hope for redemption. It doesn't have to be like that forever. We don't have to live like that forever. Whatever got passed down to us, we are not bound to live by. Redemption is possible. That's the story of Jesus. That's that's why he came. It's why he died. It's why he rose again. Wholeness begins with resurrection. That's where we started this whole series. So we're doing this series called Whole. 
It's all about it's all about being whole or being well or having living in health. That's what we want to do. That's what God wants for us. Righteousness is is really a matter of living in health. And so we've been talking about what health looks like. And when we're broken, like our families are broken. When we're broken, like even our church is going through a, a season of brokenness these days, and it's hard, and we go, man, I want, to, I want to walk through this, and I want to come out on the health side. Even when those things are happening, God looks at our lives, and he goes, I'm going to offer you redemption. I'm going to offer you a way out of this trauma or this brokenness that has landed on you. We said over the last couple of weekends that health is a state of complete well-being, that definition came from a friend of mine. Health is a state of complete well-being. And I, I kind of like that because I, I like the concept of well-being, and I sort of know when I have well-being. I, I feel it, whether it's physical or social or spiritual. I kind of know when I have well-being. But there's something that I disagree with in that definition. Some, uh, one word I'd like to change in that definition, and that's the word state. I don't think health is a state of anything because state implies static. When was the last time your health was static? If you're not sick now, you're going to be. Sorry to land, you know. If you're, if you're sick today, you're not going to be forever. I mean, it's not static. It's dynamic. So health is not a state of well-being. Health is a dynamic of being well. That's what I think health is. That's what wholeness looks like. It's a dynamic of being well, of being whole. And I believe that's the dynamic that God has passed down, God wants to pass down to us. So we pass down our sin, God goes, let me pass something different to you. Let me pass on to you a way of redemption. So let me, let me show you one story uh, before we go out and do the baptism today. Uh, one more story. So um, Luke chapter 7 has a beautiful story that I want. I'm going to read it for you. Then we'll just talk about what the implications are for us. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It's a story from the life of Jesus. It says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Hey, Simon, I, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not, not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven 
as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be well. We don't know this woman's sins. We don't know. People have conjectured, people have guessed over the centuries, but we don't know what her sins were. We do know that she was known for her sins. She was known as a sinner. That's how Simon knew her. That's apparently how the community knew her. She was known for her sins, not a particularly lovely thing to be known for. Now she's got this story about her in the Bible, and she is known for her love of Jesus. She hears that Jesus is in this house. She comes into the house. Now, in that generation, what would happen was if you had resources, you would throw parties. You would have banquets. And you would invite important people to be guests of honor. Like the rabbi, whether the local rabbi or the traveling rabbi, he got to be a guest of honor. But there were also people in the town who didn't have resources. And those people were usually, by custom, welcome to come in. They couldn't disrupt. They couldn't come to the main banquet table. But they could go to the kitchen and get food off the table in the kitchen and take it out and eat it. And so this woman comes into the, into the banquet, so that's normally okay, but she comes into the banquet room. Now, in that generation, the way they ate was different than how we eat. Most of you eat in a civilized way. You sit in chairs. Don't look at me blankly. You sit in chairs when you eat. Yes? How many of you sit in chairs when you eat? 80%. Yeah, yeah at a table. So, no, in that, so in that generation, what they did, they reclined. It says, it says in the story, they re, when they were reclining at the table, what? Nobody lays down at the table. Lies down? Nobody's horizontal at the table, right? So they would, but they, that's how they were. They would come in. If your children tried this, you'd, you'd, you'd discipline them, like sit up straight. No, they'd come in and they'd lie down on their left side. They'd lean up on their, they'd pop themselves on, on their left elbow, and they would eat with their right hand. What's problematic is drinking, because you're sideways. So I don't know how they drink and everything doesn't just leak out the, the side. I don't know how that works. If you're drinking milk, you end up with a half a milk mustache, you know, going down the side. I don't know how it works. But you're leaning over and the next guy next to you at the table, he's got his back to you because he's leaning over and it goes around all the way around the table. And it, you end up with your feet sticking out toward the wall, sort of like the spokes on a, on a wheel. That's, now that's the scene. And here's Jesus. He's probably right next to Simon, the Pharisee, who's probably right behind him. And so here's Jesus leaning, and, and his feet are sticking out this way. And in comes this woman into the room. And she stands at Jesus' feet. She stands there, and she's moved by his presence. She's probably watched him. She's probably heard him teach. She's probably seen some of the miracles of healing that he's done over the course of his ministry career. And now she knows that she needs something to change in this hand-me-down life that she's lived. And she's so certain that Jesus can make this change that she stands at his feet and she begins to weep. And as she weeps, her eyes begin to fill with tears. And then they overflow the lids. 
And they begin to run down her cheeks and they drop off her chin and she's just weeping and the tears are falling to the floor. And suddenly, to her horror, she realizes that the tears are not falling on the ground, they're falling on the feet of the rabbi. This would have been a horrible offense for her that her tears would fall on the feet of the rabbi and she's horrified. And so now she realized her tears have been falling on Jesus' feet and she drops to her hands and knees to be able to somehow wipe his feet and get those tears off of his feet. But then her hair falls down off her shoulders and it lands on her feet. And this is all inappropriate. She can't believe this is what's happening and she's trying to wipe off his feet and the tears off her feet, and then she's got her hair in the way, and now she's wiping off the tears with her own hair, and it's all broken, and it's not supposed to be that. This is not how she dreamed it up when she walked in. She's got this jar of perfume, and it was designed for Jesus' head, but she can't even figure out what to do now, so she opens it up, and she pours it out on, her, on his feet. It's a devastating expression of love. Meanwhile, Simon's over here lying down next to Jesus at the table. And he's watching the whole thing because Jesus is over here and here's Simon the Pharisee. He can see the whole thing and he's disgusted. He starts saying to himself, maybe under his breath, maybe, maybe in his head, I don't know. But he starts saying to himself, this, this dude's no prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. He he would know what kind of woman is touching her, and this is just wrong and disgusting. And so he's disgusted with the woman. He's disgusted with Jesus, and he's telling himself all this stuff. And then Jesus says, "Uh, Simon, can, can, can I say something? You know, Simon's like, sure, of course. What's he going to say to me? I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I'm, I'm Simon. I'm good. So he goes, sure. What do you have to say? Jesus, Jesus goes, there were two poor people who needed a loan. They went to a money lender to get money. One needed 50 bucks. One needed 500 bucks. When the time came to repay those loans, neither the $50 borrower or the $500 borrower could repay the debt. So they went back to the money lender. Now, what do money lenders do? This was not a trick question. What do money lenders do? They lend money. Yeah, no, don't, don't, don't go down the road yet. They do. What do money lenders do? They lend money. That's what they do. And why do they do that? To make money. They lend money to make money. Now, this guy's loaned out 50 bucks and 500 bucks, and both those people can't pay him back, and they go, we can't pay you back. And against all expectations, the money lender forgives both debts. That's not what they do. That's not what money lenders do. They're not in business to do that. Against all expectations, he forgives both debts. Jesus says to Simon, which one of those two debtors you think loved the money lender more? Simon had to guess because he didn't know. He goes, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. 
if he knew that he'd been forgiven more, he would have known the answer. He said, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. Jesus says, that's right. He says, do you see this woman? When I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet. The custom was that you would wash people's feet when they came into your house as a a sign of hospitality to them. He says, you gave me no water for my feet, but this woman has dripped her tears onto my feet. And Jesus moves in to redeem a horrible situation, horribly shameful for this woman. He says, she's poured her tears out on my feet. He said, when I, when I came in, you gave me no kiss. That was the custom. That was a custom of greeting. Give a kiss. They do it. We even do it today in Hollywood. Like, you know, welcome. We're glad you're here. You gave me nothing. He says, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she came in. He said, you gave me no oil to anoint my head as a sign of blessing. But she poured out expensive perfume on my feet. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. You love little because you didn't think you had anything to be forgiven for. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is the one you don't think is sin. Because you never ask for it to be forgiven. But he who is forgiven much, she who is forgiven much, loves much. Forgiveness is the path to wholeness. Wholeness begins with resurrection, but forgiveness is the path that wholeness takes. Forgiveness, when I ask it from you and receive it, that leads to wholeness for me. Forgiveness, when you ask it from me and I give it, that leads to wholeness for you and for me. Forgiveness is the path to wholeness. I don't know what in your life needs to be forgiven. You might be like Simon where you go, I'm good, I'm good, it's all good. And you will find that you will always struggle with love for Jesus because you don't think you need anything from him. The only sin that can't be forgiven is the one you don't ask for. But that one you don't ask for is the one we hold on to and the sins we hold on to are the ones we pass down to the next generation. What, what in your life needs to be forgiven? What do you need to ask for? And what in someone else's life whose life touches yours, what in their life needs to be forgiven? When you forgive them, you release them and you make them whole. When you ask for forgiveness and it's granted, you get whole. And then you learn quickly to love much. Jesus, I pray for us today. It is an overwhelming thing that you love us enough to forgive us. And you had all power. You had all the authority. The people around were asking, who is this who forgives sins? Lord, you're the son of God. You forgive sins. And so thank you for that. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness you've given to me. My sins are great. 
I know how to polish them up like Simon did, but I know my sins are great. Lord, I look around the room and I pray for everyone who's here that you would let us acknowledge that our sins are great and let us lean into you for forgiveness knowing that you'll say yes to us, knowing that you'll answer us. You promised. And Lord, take away that guilt and take away that shame and make us righteous and holy and good. Make us whole. Make us forgiven. Jesus, with everything we have, we say thank you to you. Amen.